If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. I'm your host, Nigel Robinson, and I am here with two very special guests, the founders themselves of Build Talent, Brian Bocchino and Jose Guardado, both here to, to kind of shine some light on our industry, on our company, and recruiting in general, just hoping to kind of give some insights to founders out there, maybe looking to run their first search or first time hearing about us or first time hiring their executive, all of that. And so I will briefly introduce you to Brian has been recruiting for about 15 plus years, started out recruiting from nurses into going into technology. I know you both met at Dropcam, which would then go on to become the Nest Cam in the Google acquisition. Brian then goes to Uber to become the first executive recruiter at Uber, working with Tuan Pham, the CTO. From there, he goes to Freenome a company that was the first investment of Andreessen Horowitz Biofunds doing liquid biopsy for colon cancer software led. And Jose, on his part, recruiting for another 15 years or so, 2005, I think it was. And after the acquisition into Google, the Nest Camp, he goes to Andreessen Horowitz to be on the executive talent team there, working with a lot of the big unicorns at that time, working with the Lyfts, the GitHubs, the Reddits, the Slacks. And from there, he goes to YC and does an executive advisory program for the YC founder community. And then he jumps into build. And so I guess a question that I have for both of you, because what I love about the firm is that all of us come from being inside the trenches with founders. We've all been internal operators more so than agency animals. And because of that, you've both been customers of these firms. What were your experiences that helped shape your ethos for forming your own search firm? I guess we would go with Brian first. Interesting question. I, there are two things that stand out across the... Over the course of my career, I've worked with a variety of different search firms on a variety of different types of searches from, from technical to go-to-market to scientific. And something that I took from all of those experiences was there is a thoughtfulness and there's a thoughtfulness to the people who do executive search really well. Like in talking to search firms and vetting them out to find who is the best firm to partner with, I learned that, that it is the people who are truly consultative in a way that is like empathetic in, in their question, action, asking, and their ability to calibrate and focus and really understand what our problem was as a business. And what we were really trying to solve for, I took that and felt like that is the kind of work that I want to do. I don't want to do the generation. Mm. And then the other experience that I took from it was, was a frustration. And it was a frustration of opacity where I was working with someone, but they were running their process. And with that came sometimes a lack of transparency and seeing what was happening behind the scenes. Um, because when we hit, sometimes search is not easy. And it is a process that you have to work through. And it is during those times that we as a business wanted to get in the trenches. We were used to being in them. And we wanted to work with our search partners to help them to find the person that we needed. And, and we would hit these, these walls of not understanding what the process fully looked like, who we were talking to, who had been touched to the market. And I realized that like I wanted to build a practice built around transparency and around empathy. I love that. I love that. Jose, what would you add or your own experience on kind of what you're bringing in to build? Yeah, I mean, I would echo what Brian said uh, wholeheartedly. Definitely can recall feeling both of those things. I guess is to reflect back on some of my thoughts being a customer of, of the search firms out there when I was a talent partner. There's a lot that is done the same. And there are a few things that are done differently. There are plenty of fantastic, very effective recruiters out there. And then there are others who are somewhat hand wavy. And like to, to Brian's point, maybe don't lead with transparency. But I guess what I saw kind of across the plethora of experiences that I had is that recruiting is still recruiting. It's not rocket science, but it is time sensitive and it requires urgency and it requires focus. And the heuristics that go into search of, of reaching out to folks, those are really the same. But 
there are different degrees that you see applied depending on the effort. And I think that in wanting to do build, part of the calling was I sat on these calls and in, in many cases, I introduced the winning candidate when I was a talent partner. And these hires would go on to have amazing impact in these companies, transformational impact in these companies. And what I thought and what Brian thought was we would love to create the kind of company that allows multiple startups, multiple companies to experience this level of of impact and to be an agent in the transformation of these companies. And when you choose a startup, you go deep into that startup, into that universe, and and you live, eat, and breathe that startup. And I think at this point in in both of our careers, we were ready to have more of a, a system level impact across the community of startups that we work with. And I think also being able to work with founders directly on every one of our projects, being able to really help them accelerate their time toward achieving their life's work that they've invested into these companies. And so the stakes are higher. And what I saw was with the, the really great search partners was that they were able to not only run the heuristics and the operations of the search, but they were also able to do the art, which is the influence, really understanding, to Brian's point, the needs of the customer, but also how to work with the founder. There's not one approach that works for everyone. Some people like time to analyze. Some people like to make decisions on the spot. Some people go with their gut. Some people like a lot of data to make a decision. And so figuring out what that scenario looks like when walking into a partnership with a founder for the first time, that's what I think we really do well based on our backgrounds and our experiences. And that's what we really try to center the practice around. Yeah. Well, you know, I agree. I think too... You've been customers and you've also had a chance to work with one another. When you first made the leap to start Build, Jose, what was it about Brian? What is Brian's superpower that that made you think that he would be kind of the perfect co-founder for this? Oh, wow. One superpower. I'll list a couple. Brian is very disarming. Brian can use humor and, and kindness in a way to diffuse the situation, to elevate the mood almost instinctually. He just understands how to do it. He's also just like one of the most effective recruiters I've ever worked with. When we started working at Dropcam, I think it was his first week he had his first hire at Dropcam. And so like he was... we Although we met at Dropcam, we also spent time at an agency called Gravity that is no longer in business. But that place produced some pretty tough recruiters. And Brian was known to have been very successful in that environment. And so I knew his chops kind of coming in, but he, he proved it over and over again at Dropcam Nest and, and then at Uber. And so combination of just like being wonderful to work with, being a top 1% talent in, in this functional capability. And then also just like, I think it was the maturity that he exhibited and, and the trust that we had been able to build. And Brian will recall when we were working at Nest, oftentimes we would drive home in evening traffic and we would talk about all the things that frustrated us about working at Google and talk about dreaming ahead and, and building our own company and how we do it differently. And there's lots of people that I've had those kind of fun conversations with, but when it came time to think about a co-founder, it was a really short list of people and, and Brian was really number one. And so I think that's like, it's almost like a work marriage. You have to find someone that compliments you. You have to find somebody who's going to give it the same amount of effort that you are. And you have to find somebody who you have trust with. And so all those bits lined up for us. And so it was just, a, it was a good match. And, and I, like I said, I didn't have to, didn't have to look too far. Right. Thank you, Jose. That, that was, I mean, I'm just, that was the nicest thing someone said to me this week. <laughs> well, I'm going to have your turn. You know, I'm sure you get, well, at that point, you know, you're leaving Freenome. You've had this incredible run at Uber, another incredible run at Freenome. You're at a point where you could probably have gone to a lot of different places. What was it about Build and about Jose's partnership? Like, what did you see in him and in this opportunity that, that made you jump? What's his superpower? I actually wasn't even thinking about this. I had known after my experience at Uber that I did not want to just be a recruiting manager. And I knew that like when I started at Uber, I entered Uber as a recruiter. And I will say to uh, like the most influential person that I worked with during that time was Twan. And he challenged my way of thinking and he gave me worldview. And I feel like I left a partner. And that that moment in time, I realized that my potential, uh, like I had not even realized my full potential yet. And I realized that I could do more than just go through the motions in my career. And I knew that the one thing I did have clarity on was like, I was going to own my own business one day. And after, at that point in time, I realized I needed to go to a place where I was going to not just go and build a company, but where I was going to go and work with founders that were going to teach me how to build my own business. And that's how I ended up at Freenome. 
to his credit, Riley Ennis is like, was the most amazing boss I've ever had in my life. He was the best mentor I've ever had. And I learned things about myself that I didn't even know were possible. And then, so I was on my journey at Freenome and Jose approached me and it was, to me, felt like the opportunity of a lifetime. Like I could start a company at any point in time, but I could only start a company with Jose at this time. And that to me was the catalyst in saying like, I have conviction in my life to go do this. And the re like Jose literally sits on a very, very short list of people. And when I knew about Jose from Gravity, when I was working there, I'd known about him and him being effective, just like highly skilled recruiter. But when I went and worked with him at Dropcam, he showed me that a recruiter wasn't just a recruiter, but someone who could have a worldview and have an opinion. And he was the first person I had worked with who had an elevated view of what the function was in a business. Mm. And that to me is amazing. Like Jose's worldview is, is larger than any person I've ever seen. And his tenacity and grit is unparalleled. And in many ways, Jose is the things that I am not. And like Jose talks about the marriage. Like I feel like there come, we approach and view problems from different perspectives. And I think that that allows us to have really principled conversations with each other that ultimately like allows us to come to very great conclusions. Like very rarely are we misaligned on things. And we start from different positions though. And I think that like, in that sense, I felt like I could work, disagree, learn and grow and become that fully realized version of myself because of my work with Jose. So like, and I don't know if, and now that, now that I've worked with him again for years, I don't know if there's anyone else that I would, I think Jose still sits on the top of that list. Yeah. Same. Yeah. The beautiful work marriage. I love it. Yeah. And so the thing that is interesting here is that both of you have kind of come full circle. You started gravity, you go into drop cam, and then you come your own paths. And in that, in kind of your own paths to this point, you've both had an opportunity to work with a multitude of founders, different personalities, different acumens around hiring. And now we get a chance to work with a lot of first-time founders. And I guess, what's the wide spectrum of ability that first that you see in founders and their ability to hire? Like the difference between someone who is really good at this thing versus someone who is first-time or never done it before. And kind of how do you think about that? I'll go first. I think that the spectrum, if we're going to sort of define the, the different ends of the spectrum, the sort of least experienced founder, I've encountered inexperienced founders that are good partners and inexperienced founders who are not good partners. So an inexperienced founder who is a good partner, like is willing to trust, is willing to challenge themselves to come to conviction on choosing a search partner, choosing a profile that you want to go after, choosing a candidate from the pipeline, et cetera, versus a first-time founder who doesn't know who to trust and isn't sure if we're doing a good job or if he can trust that we're working the search to the best of our ability or that the candidate isn't because they're not 100% bought in that they couldn't be converted, et cetera. And so like you definitely... I, I hate to, to put everyone in one bucket because you have both a spectrum of experience and then you have a spectrum of coachability. Sure. And so like I think the, the perfect founder is an experienced and very coachable founder. And so we have an example of that that we're working on a VP of product search with right now. These are second-time founders. They've exited their first company. The company who they exited to is an investor in their new company. They know what they're doing. They trust us. We're working a very effective search. We're approaching offer within 60 days. And so that's like a, a perfect scenario for us. In reality, you encounter searches at all points of the spectrum of both experience and coachability. And so we definitely look for those coachable bits from a founder. But I also look for do I believe and am I inspired by this person? Because if I'm not, then why would I assume that a candidate would be? And that's really the founder's job in the search. It's our job to provide the pipeline. It's our, our job to sort of steward the process and challenge the founder's perspectives when possible. It's our job to stay close to the candidate. But ultimately, that founder needs to be able to come to their own conviction. And we are there to in service of, of that process unfolding. And so when I see tenacity, when I see mission-driven, when I see willing to do whatever it takes, those are fantastic signs. When I see willingness to work with us and take counsel, that's an essential kind of counterpart to that. And so at a high level, those are things that I see and look for. Right, right. And thinking about how we define the spectrum, anything you would add there, Brian? Well, how do you think about this idea of coachability, trust, the conviction pieces when you're kind of looking out at the founder landscape? 
when I am talking to a founder for the first time and evaluating that part, like, you know, you never know, but you never know who you're walking into a relationship with. And I think one of the things that I always look for is self-awareness and introspection. You know, like, is this person able to challenge, even in those initial conversations, their thoughts, their opinions, their thesis? Are they willing to look inward? And the reason I look for that is because, and regardless of, and I think that the, this quality can sit on that spectrum that Jose is talking about around coachability and experience, because you can go to search with a thesis and have an idea in your head of what you're looking for in a candidate. But sometimes we hit these, these walls. We need to use data. We need to use quantitative and qualitative information to understand how do we get past that wall? And it's the people who are able to look inward, I find, who are self-aware, who have introspection, they're able to be really objective about what's our blocker and how do we actually work around that? Like, how do we find the ladder? How do we dig a hole? How do we find the edge and walk around this wall? When it's those people that I find that are the best partners in the process. And so, like, I think that's a, a really great quality to look for. Absolutely. And I can see, too, that we're kind of talking about, like, our side of, of the table in a little bit and, and seeing like how we look at and are able to assess founders ability here for the founder side of the table, when they're looking for a search partner, what are the things that they should be thinking about? What are the questions that they should be asking as we can go in the same order, perhaps, or Brian, you want to? Yeah, I think people should be looking for one experience. Like I, I, Paul over at Excel always talks about like, the work that people should do should be relatable, it should be relevant, and should be referenceable. And I think that's really important. Like people should have experience in the thing that you're looking for in a search partner. So, like for us, we specialize in VP, C suite search, and engineering and product. When we go agnostic across domain. We tend to play and want to work with people who are early stage to mid stage. We've done later stage, but I think understanding the early stage founder and the needs of the business at that stage from a technical standpoint of view is really important. And it allows us to have a perspective. And so when looking for a partner, I think they should be asking about like people's process, how they think about philosophically search being done. And there's like the strategic stuff, there's the tactical stuff that they should be getting into. How are they actually going to work with each other? Understanding does this person seem like someone I can also win with? And I think uh, Jose brought up a point way earlier about like execution, sense of urgency. Like, you know, ultimately you should be finding someone who I think is going to be able to execute and deliver for you. Yeah, those are all really important aspects. I think the sort of most obvious one and uh, the one that we're working on building out for ourselves, I think is track record. I think in our business, it's 100% referral based. So you don't cold call your way into working a C-suite search. The company or the VC firm comes after you. And they come after you because of a reputation. And so for us, we're a young firm. You know, Two and a half years ago, we started out, we had no reputation. And so it was the reputation of me and Brian as previous operators that we had to lean on. But as we built a track record, we can point to our wins in 2022 and 2021 and 2020 that now tell the story of Build Talent and our own track record. And certainly it is not as long as some of the other firms that have been going for some time. But we take a lot of pride in the quality of companies that we've worked with. We take a lot of pride in the fact that we've gone 100% of times to offer on every search that we've taken on. But to come back to the question, I personally think that when you're working on engineering and product data types of searches where there is technical complexity, I think an understanding of the requirements is really essential. And lots of types of recruiting, you can pattern match, you can keyword search, etc. But I feel like when you are balancing things like leadership, culture against hard technical requirements and how hands-on you need someone to be, those are nuanced conversations. And I think it really helps to understand what the building blocks are so that you can have an objective conversation with founders around what they need, what they don't need, what the trade-offs are, et cetera, as opposed to operating with half of vocabulary and not really being able to engage on that deep of a level. I think that that is somewhat unique to these disciplines for recruiting, where the more technical you can be, the more effective you can be. I also think that you, as a founder, should be looking for someone who will challenge your way of thinking. There are plenty, I would say the majority of recruiting firms out there can be hired to be your yes person and to just agree with whatever strategy you set forward. But if you're going to be paying six figures to a recruiting firm to come in and help you hire someone who could transform your company, I think it's in your best interest to take their counsel or at least to center the partnership around a dialogue. That doesn't mean that you have to listen to everything that they say, but like somebody who's going to have a point of view 
and somebody who's not going to be afraid to share that point of view if they disagree or think something can be done better. And I think that comes with experience. And I've definitely seen a lot of recruiters who maybe don't have the domain experience, but have plenty of chutzpah or sort of willingness to push back. And so that in and of itself is not a qualifier. I think it's the combination of the knowledge plus that that willingness to push back. And then last, I would say, is we've talked about it a lot, but transparency, transparency around like, where have you been successful? Where have you not been successful? Transparency around how are you going to work? You know, what can I expect? Things like that. And so... Like Brian said, we've really tried to center our value proposition and our pitch around that, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And in the moments where founders and search firms find that partnership, when you're, you sign the contract, you're in the kickoff, what is kind of your number one priority in that engagement at the beginning to make sure that we step on the good foot? So the cliche, and, and uh, I got this from Jeff Stump, who I worked for three years under uh, K16Z. This is a measure twice, cut once type of business for executive search. And so when we look over the body of completed work that we've done, these projects have 300, 400, in some cases, 700 profiles in the project, 700 people that we've contacted for the search. And so when you're going after uh, candidates like this, there's going to be a significant body of effort that is required up front. And so you better know which direction you're supposed to be going. Because if you head in the wrong direction, you're just going to have to redo all of that work and you're going to take, you're going to make it very painful for yourself and for the client. And so if you can find alignment, we like to use the phrase mutual truth. The quicker we can get to mutual truth in terms of what the founder wants and thinks we can get and what we want and think we can get, the quicker we can achieve an outcome. And I think that we like to say that first 30 days is really the audition period. Within 30 days, you should know if the partnership is working well to avoid having to pay invoices that you don't feel the search firm has earned. 30 days should be plenty of time to discern whether the search firm understands your search, is being an effective partner, is managing pipeline well, and is bringing you qualified candidates, and that it's getting better week by week. So that's kind of what we look for in in the beginning innings to make sure it's heading in the right direction. Yeah, I'd say the the level of calibration in those weeks is also really critical, that idea of like measuring twice and cutting once. And really helping not only understand where the bullseye is, but what does the edge of that bullseye look like? And really, what is the spectrum of excellent for this organization so that your partner can effectively help focus that time and energy that Jose is talking about around, like, you know, going down the wrong direction? Like, if you can be really principled about what you're looking for, you can create, and you only really need to think about 300 people. And if you're doing that even well and you calibrate even tighter, you're finding your finalists in your first cohort of candidates. You're finding your cohort, your first, your finalists in that first cohort. You're running a search that's 65 or 75 days. You think about that level of impact and transformation. If you're, if you're someone who can come to conviction and has clarity and you have a process that's running that tight, suddenly you've introduced a new technical executive into your organization in one quarter. One board meeting ago, you're talking to your board about launching a search. The next one, you're introducing them to the new technical leader in your company. And I was like, yeah, that, that can be truly transformative. And I think that's really anchored and built on the calibration, the iteration, feedback loops, communication. Yeah. I would say the downside of that, if you don't, if you're not identifying your finalists in the first cohort, it's just like, it's pain. And it's sort of like, what type of pain, right? Because if you're missing on the first, then you're hoping that you get them on the second. But if you fail to do that, now you're at a point where you've hit three or 400 people already in the search. The likely suspects are gone. And so now you're sort of scouring the fringes, trying to find people that are hopefully competitive with those first candidates that you saw, which were really good. And that's a really dark place to be in the search because it's rare that the best candidate pops up month four, month five, month six in the search. And so nobody wants to get there. We try to avoid it as much as possible. But yeah, if you're not succeeding within the first call it 10 people that you've brought to the table, It's just like, pick your poison. It's some type of pain. Yeah, no, the speed thing that you bring up, Brian, I think is huge. I mean, I was talking with Tammy a couple of weeks, Tammy Hahn from Emergent a couple of weeks ago, and she was just talking about how long you're really looking at when people run a search, like realistically, how long is a search being run? And so the difference between a six-month search and a one-month search and that calibration period, that focus that, that you're talking about, it's a huge difference. Huge difference. And in that spirit, like say that, I guess the different flavors of pain, almost like you're talking about Jose, like the common mistakes that we see when things don't go right, when you don't get the first cohort finalist who signs the offer, what is the spectrum that people should be like wary of 
cautionary themes? The biggest thing I have ever felt sitting on the other side of that is fatigue and, and second guessing yourself because it's like, did we see that excellent person? Do we see excellent yet? Do they understand what we're looking for? And then there's almost this point in time and you can second guess everything in front of you. And then that fatigue, when that fatigue hits a founder, it can leak over and reach into that leadership group, that, that interviewing group. And then suddenly you're, the committee of people that you're leaning on, they're feeling the burn and it cascades. And it's, I think it was clarity and conviction in the North Star that always pulled my, the teams that I was working with out of those situations. And it was really getting back to first principles and saying, what are we doing here? Regardless of what got you in that situation. A couple of things that I see as well, and I agree with what you said, Brian, there are two sort of failure modes that I've seen that make searches go four, five, six plus months. One is a sort of perfectionism in the founder's tastes where no one is good enough because it must be A plus across all categories. In reality, very few people are A plus across all categories. People have strengths and weaknesses, but it's sort of a mindset of finding the weakest and focusing on that and disqualifying the candidate based on the weakness as the primary lens, that's a failure mode. The mentality of like, oh, there's always one more, right? That's another failure mode. And we've seen this where people have experience maybe building engineering teams or building sales teams where there are literally tens of thousands of candidates. You can always just find more candidates. In the executive world, that is not the case. And in many instances, there are fewer than 200 people that are really even qualified for the job. And so squandering those first valuable candidates because you think the next best one is going to come is a failure mode. And so it's sort of the old cliche is bird in the hand is worth worth two in the bush. We've definitely seen founder mindsets where they always take the two in the bush every time. And it's hard to win like that. Yeah, I can totally see that. I can totally see that. And we've been on board with this kind of thing before. When all goes well, when you're in the closing stages, how should founders be orienting themselves to kind of switch gears? You have this process of building the trust and clarity around who you need for this position. You've now have a, a pipeline of people that are like that. You think you've found somebody that is your person. How do you switch gears? How should they be switching their mentality to go through the closing strides versus just the assessing, I guess? I'll take this one because I actually created a, a little bit of a checklist for a client recently. And this is not exhaustive, but what I would say is like, these are some high level things to keep in mind. So you're getting there with your finalists. Number one, are you at conviction with your finalists? You want to make sure that you know that your this candidate is your number one. And so if you have questions to answer before that, answer them and get to the point where you have conviction that this person is your number one finalist. Number two, is the candidate bought in? I recommend the founder schedule a call or a meeting aimed at discovering concerns, questions, hesitations, and timing. Like what could go wrong? Tell me what could go wrong. You could use the, the one to 10 method. If everything is good on a scale of one to 10, how are you ready to, how ready are you to accept this offer? If that candidate is not 10 out of 10, 9 out of 10, is not 100% bought in, all efforts in the recruiting process need to be dedicated toward closing that gap with that person. And if that means putting all other candidates on hold so that you can spend four or five hours with this candidate to get them to conviction, that's what you have to do if that's your number one. You should have your investors, advisors lined up and ready for an intro to help close. You should have a game plan for when you will introduce them. You should have your allies ready. Number three, you should have a close daily cadence in communications with your candidate by now. Ideally texting, ideally texting multiple times per day. You always want to have a subsequent event on the calendar booked so that there's always a next step with the candidate. Number four, do you have your numbers prepared? Do you know what you're going to offer? Do you know what your budget is? Do you know kind of what your ceiling is and kind of how much you can stretch? Number five, can you meet the person in like face-to-face to deliver the offer? Like pre-COVID, it would be over dinner. These days, it's a little bit different. We see walk-in talks. We do see dinners. That's thawing a little bit. The best founders I see, it's multiple dinners with their finalists. And even in a remote world, that is founders flying across country. Yeah. yeah. We've seen it. Agreed. Number six, like once you deliver the offer verbally, be prepared to send over paperwork. There may be some back and forth, but like you need to have that ready to go. Number seven, once the offer is delivered, you should follow up by sending over like some kind of kindness. It could be company swag. It could be a t-shirt. It could be a baby onesie. It could be a handwritten note from the interview team, something that just shows the candidate that you are thinking about them and that you care about them. 
And then number eight, like I think it's best practice to put some kind of expiration date or agreement on timing with the candidate for decision-making. We don't like a candidate sitting on an offer for one, two, three weeks. That candidate rarely accepts the offer after having it in their possession for two, three weeks and not moving on it. So high level. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Brian. I would say that is like, that's a really great list. <laughs> and I think uh, in that, in, towards the end of that, around that idea of the expiration is like, I rarely think the piece of paper actually matters. The signing, that's just an action. The conviction internally to accept that offer, that's what's really important. That goes back to even what Jose was talking about in the beginning around where is this person on that one to 10 spectrum? Because if they're not at eight, that offer is going to be sitting there and they're not going to actually be really committed to what you're doing. Getting that person to nine and 10 is really critical. And I think the other one sometimes that people take for granted is that like that process of selling starts on the first phone call. The first phone call is a sales call. It is not an assessment call. There, and that is something where people, when building their businesses, are used to hiring engineers, hiring people. And that first phone call can be very assessment because you're trying to guard your time and make sure that you're as efficient as possible and using it. When you're hiring an executive, you need to change your brainwave and say, and you need to be in sell mode every single moment you talk to them. It's a tennis match. And you have to always be going back and forth, assessing and selling. First call, all sell. Give them a reason to want to talk to your co-founder, to your business. Give them a reason to care about why they should even be engaging with you. And if you can do that right off the bat, it makes all of those other things that Jose is talking about so much easier. For sure. And we, this is a, a list and a lot of what we're talking about too is like founder side of the table. How do they need to be driving to the close? When you have a great partner, what should a founder be expecting from their search partner in the close? What does excellence look like from that standpoint? We always talk to people about, there's this like one of these buildisms and it's like, we can launch the plane, we can fly the plane in terms of the engagement, but a founder has to land the plane. No one is ever going to work when a partnership, a founder and a partnership have built and that those candidates aren't going to fall in love and work at Build. They're going to fall in love with the founder of the company. They're going to be there. And so I think what they should expect from us not is closing their candidate for them, but looking around corners, understanding and perceiving where are those deltas in conviction that a candidate has so that a founder can be empowered to be effective in those closing conversations. We should be able to provide back channels and pull into our networks and be able to give references outside of the ones that the candidate's providing to help give that founder clarity around any unknowns that they have. And it's to take literally the 30 years of combined experience that Jose and I have around closing candidates and helping founders avoid some of the missteps that can happen in those final days of a search. Because that is where the dance is most critical and every step matters. And it's really a dance. And it's just like, if you're going to go get married, you're going to go to a dance coach to help you make sure that you have the best wedding possible and everyone can see you out there looking great. You know, and like, you're not going to lead the cha-cha to a YouTube video. Yeah. And I guess they could say, you know, and it's like, and so that's where people like ourselves are really excellent in that idea of what does the partnership look like? I think what you should not be looking for the partner to do is, is push or coerce and try to say, you must hire this person or here's the best that you got. You need to act now. I feel like that is the, the kind of thing that people have had experience with recruiters doing that is really not productive in this type of an effort. You're not going to coerce your way into this kind of a, a hire and you're not going to coerce a candidate into accepting this kind of an offer. And so it is really about discovery. It's about finding mutual truth. It's about addressing concerns asking the hard questions and and not leaving that stuff undone and hoping for an accepted offer. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to zoom out a little bit, you guys have been at this for a long time. I feel like in the, over the course of, of y'all's careers as recruiters, as talent partners, I feel like we've seen a lot of uh, change in the importance and kind of the gravity of the talent partner. I guess I'm, I'm wondering kind of what y'all's view is on that as we see VCs now starting to hire out talent teams and you, we see startups that are hiring recruiters earlier, hiring executive recruiters earlier in their lifetimes. Yeah. What are some of the things that are the ways that you've seen recruiting change or that you've seen the talent partner evolve over this time? And Yeah. Yeah. 
10 years ago, you could count the talent partners on one hand. I think it was Joe over at Sequoia, Juliet at, at KP, and then, then along came uh, Dan Portillo at Greylock. And now every firm, and I'm talking about hundreds of firms, have talent partners. And there, as you can imagine, there's a spectrum of effectiveness across them because I don't think there are 400 qualified people for those roles. But there are the really great talent partners are folks who have either been former operators themselves or have been around enough founders and operating environments as, as a consultant, as an advisor, that they've soaked in some of that best practice sort of juju. But I also think that the best talent partners are constantly engaged in the search. They, if they're not submitting candidates themselves, they're at least working on back channels throughout the process. They're expressing an opinion. They're pushing back on the founder when there's a message that the founder needs to hear that maybe is not is best not coming from us. They are providing translation both ways, from, from the founder to us and from us to the founder. They are, in some cases, building a relationship with the candidate themselves, introducing them to others in, in the, the VC firm, etc. They're bringing to bear comp data. They're bringing to bear sort of broad market perspective. And then the other end of the spectrum is like people who just like introduce search firms and they keep a roster of search firms and, oh, you do engine product, we'll introduce you there. I think that that's like, that is still very helpful for companies because it, it sort of it shortcuts the, the trust and like, hey, just give me three or four good options that I can consider. But there is another level of impact that can be made. And certainly I have seen it. And, and you know, I think certain firms do it, do it better than others. But all in all, you know, I think that there are broad reasons of why a VC firm would bring in a talent team. And I think that a lot of it in the recent years has been sort of matching what the rest of the market has done. And it's hard to see those kinds of recruiting partners being really valued in their recruiting firms. And so there's a spectrum of sort of how bought in the firms are to, to their talent practices in general. I would say there's one thing that I've noticed change in is that it's kind of like the awakening of the talent function. When I joined, when I left Gravity and I went in-house, the perception that I saw across the board generally was that like, as an internal operator, you kind of took orders and that was it. It was take a ticket, fill a ticket. Talent for a long time has been seen as the short-term strategic function and people or HR has been seen as the long-term vision of the, the function. That's where org planning and org design comes in, forecasting, things like that. Recruiting is like, oh, butts and seats. And what's happened over time is that the, the line has blurred. The need for talent folks to have an understanding of things like forecasting and planning has pulled the function deeper and become more strategic within businesses. And I think, so there's that part of the awakening. The other one is that like as time has gone on, you start to look at how like you look at a hundred person startup and you know you could have an engineering team that's 20 or 30 or 60 people and you'll have one recruiter supporting that function. The supply demand is more precious than it is a software engineer these days. And sometimes the awakening that's happened is in the brain of recruiters. We now realize what our worth is and the ability and the option for us to go and drive impact is greater because. It's not just, hey, sit in a chair and fill a ticket anymore, and then or just scale with a company. Now, because of the things that Jose is talking about, the paths of, of a really great talent partner are greater than they were before. And people realize that. Absolutely. I mean, we were at uh, South by Southwest this year, and all of the founders were talking about talent. All of the founders were talking about how hard hiring is. And I guess to close out on that thought, if you're talking to a young founder today who maybe they come from an older way of thinking about talent or they're not sure how they should be thinking about talent within their organization in this function, like what advice would you give to people kind of just starting out? Yeah, I would say that it is like, number one, get used to it because for as long as you're running your company, you're going to need talent. Like certainly you need a product, you need to be able to raise money. But if you can't bring a team on board to help you achieve your, your ambition, uh, it's going to be really, really hard for you. And so the CEO that I that previously worked with, I, I, he hired me in as employee number 15 at a startup that I went to. And he constantly tells me, the next company, I'm going even earlier. Mm. It's hard to get a recruiter to join your company at four or six people. But I think that the sooner that you can get someone in, the, the bigger impact they'll have, assuming that they're, they're able of handling their responsibilities. But the rule of thumb that I would always tell people when I was a talent partner is like, if you have 10 plus hires, that you need to be made over a 12-month period, it's probably time for a full-time recruiter. I think that it's also very unlikely that you're going to get someone 
like one of the three of us to join your early stage company because we have more options. And so you might have to be willing to train and hire somebody maybe who has some sales experience or maybe some sourcing experience or recruiting coordination experience and, and train them a bit how to do it. In a perfect world, you get somebody who already knows how to hit the ground running. But I think that's how founders have had to adapt a bit. And I think that there are things like Growth by Design Talent puts on the recruiting bootcamp. Jennifer Kim does something similar. And so you see this proliferation of sort of secondary education opportunities coming up for recruiters to sort of empower the masses to be more effective. And so those are some of the things I've seen. I always tell people you got to hire for the things that you can't teach. Cultural alignment to your business philosophically is more important, I think. People can like, you can take someone who's a coordinator or sourcer, you can teach them the science of recruiting. They can learn that part. But alignment, like ultimately, if you're going to, to scale your business, especially when you're getting to the moment of bringing in your first person who's really going to scale out and hire 100 people for you, that person is the arbiter of your culture. And you need to give trust to that person to say, I'm not going to be there for every screen, everything. And there are going to be times when I'm going to look to you and say, as a founder, are we making the right decision? And you need that talent partner of yours to be able to have the ability with conviction to say, yes, we are headed in the right direction. Or, you know what? I've heard someone say this and I've heard someone else say that in the process. And like, this is a thread that needs to be teased out because like, I'm finding misalignment to our culture. And it's someone who truly understands that that's going to be able to do that for you. The one thing I should have said first on this is like, recruiting is not the recruiter's job. Recruiting is everyone's job. Recruiting is the founder's job. And if the founder doesn't think that that's a big part of their job, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, you should be recruiting. Every founder should be recruiting at least 50% of the time. Absolutely. You know, like every manager in your company should be recruiting 50% of the time. Twan used to say, if you're not, if you're not doing that, you're doing it wrong. And the people who were, were, you know, and you could just see it. Yeah, we see the difference all the time. Yeah. How has the landscape shifted since COVID has thrust us into an increasingly remote world? What are some of the effects that come to the top of your mind when thinking about our talent ecosystem? I think it's opened up the it's opened up the country to more senior talent. Whereas the convention was broadly before COVID that hey, you know, some teams are distributed, but really the executive team is all in the home base. I think you've seen that blown up. I think that now as things are starting to thaw, you see more companies asking people to come in in person. And so I think that those will exist in the market, but the percentage of companies who offer remote or hybrid will increase by multiples. And I think that the effect that it has on talent is that talent now has... Everyone's had the taste of working from home. And so some percentage of people don't want to go back. right? And so that percentage of people is less than what existed before. So there will be less people going into the office and there will be more candidates making decisions based on, can I take this role remotely or will this role require me to go into the office? And so I think that the talent pool for companies hiring remotely has grown and the talent pool for companies hiring in-house in person has gone down. Yeah, I'd also say that there are more senior candidates that are willing to like entertain reinventing their careers and going to smaller companies. Like now, I think now that I think that has to do with like there has been COVID is cyclical, and I think when COVID started, there was a lot of uncertainty, and people didn't know what was going to happen. But people who were deeper in their career had seen things like the dot com bust. They had seen the recession, and they had known that this will pass. And, you know, like things are starting to thaw out from where they were two and a half years ago. And I think that that tolerance for, for what am I doing in my career and what should I be entertaining has like warmed because they see more capital in the market than there was before. There's more stability behind early stage companies than there were in the past. And because things are now also more tolerant for remote work, people don't have to be tied down to geography or to an office. And they can be a seasoned manager that knows how to effectively manage and grow and develop people remotely. And they don't need to go to a startup that or a series A startup or a seed startup that used to maybe five years ago be looking for a $250,000 investment, but now is getting a five or $10 million investment. And that brings a level of stability that they know that, that they will be invested in and the team that they will build will be invested in as well. Yeah, I think about that part a lot of the capital piece where I think there used to be much more like living standard based compensation packages like, oh, you're in SF, you should get this much. You're in Colorado, you should get that much. How has both like the higher valuations and this remote talent world, like do we see that kind of playing out in comp packages at the various stages as well? Or 
I think that if you're a Utah company trying to hire an executive in San Francisco or New York, you have to adjust to where they are. That's just the logic. Whereas the reverse, you know, if you're a company in New York trying to hire someone in Utah, maybe you have some flexibility. I feel like there's still a, not a lot of a transparency around executive compensation. More so, there's not a lot of transparency intra-market and how the different markets compare. And so unless the candidate has option impact or compensia or some kind of a talent partner or exec search partner to, to give them context on the broader market, they're kind of uh, operating in an information asymmetry. But I think that the top talent gets paid like top talent, regardless of whether they live. We place the head of engineering at OpenSea. They're based in New York. He lives a thousand miles away and he wasn't going to move to take the job. And so they had to come to him and sort of find an arrangement that worked to work for both sides. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. We've talked about a lot of stuff. A lot of what we try to do in the show is to give some game to founders, help them orient themselves. What is kind of, as the founders of the firm and founders of the show, what is kind of your, your greatest hope for this show uh, and for the firm overall? I hope I really want to leave people in a better place than when I found them. And I think we do in general. And like, that's why I love working with first-time founders and early founders, early stage businesses. Like, I love zero to one. It's where I derive my greatest level of happiness. And when leaving Freenome, I realized that like, Tose brought up a point earlier about driving impact in a single business versus like an ecosystem or even system level. And I really realized that like, man, by starting this business, I can not touch one business, but I can touch a generation of founders and impact a generation of businesses. But there are oh so many hours in the day. Like I got to sleep. I have to be present in my life. I got to feed my cats. And so as a result of that, um, I can't work with everyone. And hopefully this show is able to be in service of those people that Build cannot touch. We hopefully will be able to help those out there that we just won't have the time. And if we can lead people in a better place than when we found them through just this episode alone, well, then we've done something good for them. I would say philosophically, like this podcast is in pursuit of truth. And, you know, truth is not always objective. Sometimes it is subjective. And so it is truth as, as we see it, but demystifying and sort of like providing a vocabulary for and a framework to understand the topics that we deal with. Like that's what I'm hoping from the podcast. And I'm hoping that to Brian's point, the people who we're not able to work with are able to, to listen to this and find some value. For our company, what I think that Brian's point on, on thinking outward is, is definitely important. And I guess I also think inward, like I want our business to be sustainable, to be able to be around years from now. I want our business, business to be able to support opportunity and promotion for our people, development of our people, to bring them up as search partners, to make them more effective in, in their careers. And I think ultimately, we want to be in a position to be investors as well as partners to these companies. And we have examples already of us being able to do that and acquire equity in the partnership with working with founders. I would love to see that continue because certainly we are in service of them and supporting them when we're helping them hire executives for their company and taking that, extending it one step further and actually putting money where our mouth is and backing these founders. That's the next step for us. I love it. As some closeout rounds, anything that I didn't ask that I should have, any, any questions you wish had come down? You didn't ask how we got our start in recruiting, which is always a fun topic, but maybe for another time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's say that for the second. The second. I know that is that is. You do both have pretty interesting paths in founders that you really admire and why. Yeah, there's so many. I'll start. I guess I'd talk about the founders of Coin Tracker, Chandan and John. Just intensely thoughtful, super focused, values and, and mission above everything. But the way that they've leveraged their network the way they've been able to outperform in terms of like growing their company, building their team. They're fantastic. Gosh, the I'll send a shout out to Iman Abuzaid over at Incredible Health. We worked with her on a project that took way too long. We had a fantastic outcome at the end, but she was absolutely relentless and she was willing to put in all of the time that was required. And it was, it was a little bit painful as it, it moved into the later months and to, to your earlier point, fatigue, but she never lost sight of the goal. And ultimately, when the time came, she got her person. I would say I would give a big shout out to Annalisa Gooden. We work together on two searches where she's the CEO of Catch and Release. And it was amazing to see someone who didn't have a process, who knew 
that she needed to hire not only a product leader and an engineering leader. And it can take founders sometimes months to learn how to get to conviction and change their thinking about what is the role of a search partner like myself. And that change happened, I think, within a day. And like we were able to partner together and hire a really amazing, really help build out and make two really amazing hires for her. And I think put her in a a better place than when she was. And I think fundamentally change how she thinks about hiring in her business entirely. And like that was a a really great experience. So that's someone that I worked with and build. Another shout out to Riley Ennis at Freno. I think like he is, I have literally talked to thousands of founders in my life and I've never met anyone like him. He is someone who thinks about how many days he has left on this earth and what his impact is going to be. And when he told me that, I literally blew my mind. I'm like, hey, you've wasted too many days. You need to get your S together. Wow, music festivals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I saw going to so many music festivals and get back on the keyboard. But you know, like, yeah. And he really pushed me, especially when I left. He's like, if you're going to leave here, you're going to go do this. You better be excellent at it. And I still think about that every single day. Wow. Yeah. I think the thing that's kind of thematic is the focus. The focus is super key. Relentless. Well, I appreciate you both for joining me on the show. It's been an amazing time getting to build the firm alongside y'all. I know we got many more victories to come. Any founders that are listening to this that do want to reach out and to either of these folks and other inboxes open. And yeah, thanks again for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Nigel. Thank you, Nigel. Thank you, Jose. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io. And make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening.